Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Sanji Kim. Sanji is a kindred spirit. In the early days of fMRI, about everything related to fMRI contrast mechanism research, physiologic underpinnings, limits and methodology that I thought would be interesting to explore, Sanji was ahead of me and produced results faster and better. Early on, he embraced the much more difficult but ultimately more penetrating work of fMRI on animal models. Sanji is simply the best in the world at what he does, which has been for the past quarter century, research on figuring out the interplay of pulse sequence weighting, neurophysiology, and fMRI contrast. Essentially, he's been leading the world pushing the limits of our understanding of the biologic underpinnings of fMRI contrast towards answering systems neuroscience questions. Sanji received his PhD in physical chemistry from Washington University in 1988 and for investigating blood flow using NMR spectroscopy and did a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Washington on determination of biomolecular structure by NMR. Dr. Kim moved to the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Minnesota and joined the Human Functional MRI Research Team, which produced one of the first human fMRI papers in 1992. After spending a decade at the University of Minnesota and advancing to full professor, Dr. Kim moved to the University of Pittsburgh in 2002, where he was appointed as the Paul C. Lauterberg Chair and built a state-of-the-art neuroimaging center. In 2013, Dr. Kim moved back to Korea to direct the Center for Neuroscience Imaging Research and to be a faculty at the Sung Kwekon University in Seoul. This is a pretty in- intense podcast that has a slightly different format than my typical podcasts. I hit on about 15 of the big questions in fMRI from the pre and post undershoot, negative signal changes, new types of contrast, fMRI specificity, spatial and temporal resolution and other things. Towards the end, we talk about his inspired work using optogenetics to provide insight into resting state fMRI, as well as how excitation and inhibition affects fMRI contrast. And now, here's Sanji. All right, Sanji, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah, this, uh, this will be fun. Um, you know, I just want to start by saying, you know, just up front that someone who has, you know, you've been in the field for ever since the beginning and in terms of your, the breadth of what you've done and the depth with which we looked, I, I think, I can't think of anyone who's done as much as far as you're concerned. So, so yeah, and, and, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk even about your, your recent papers, but, but this is a great opportunity to sort of pick your brain on a lot of things that you've touched on. You've touched on so many things. And uh, I just want to, you know, I usually start out by just asking, you know, as far as how you got started, what made you interested in, in doing this? Was it just a matter of just uh, being in the right place and, 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 you know, just mentors that were significant or collaborators that were significant to you? I'm kind of curious. Yeah. I, I, so thank you, Peter. I, I think it's a great introduction. Thank you so much. No, obviously, it's a lot of things, uh, you know, happen. It's uh, not uh, planned, those one. 
So when I went to the uh, graduate school, then I went to the graduate school at Washington University at St. Louis. So I decided what to do about there. So I actually have uh, something we are talking about optics and there's NMR lab. So I decided to do NMR research for my PhD program. So there was Joseph Ackerman and many of you, you know, you know him very well. He's the inventor of the his, uh, surface core. So I went to his laboratory for my PhD work. So he gave me a lot of options what to do about those ones. So I actually chose to do uh, perfusion measurement with animal. So we inject the you know, deuterate water into the animal. Then we use the deuterium animal. We follow the washer of the deuterate water and we calculate the perfusion value. So that was my PhD work. So I was, you know, learned a lot about things about the perfusion and also animal spectroscopy. I think this is one of the foundation of my lot of later perfusion research in my career also. Okay. And I think then that's, uh, then I think I went to the two years postdoc at the, you know, Washington, uh, University of Washington at St. Louis, uh, no, no, Seattle from so structural animal field. So nothing to do with uh, is the current, my research those one. Then I went to the Minnesota. So I met a lot of uh, people and I think so, especially as neuroscientists, I met uh, Peter Striggs, Trojaplos, uh, Apostolos Trojaplos. Yeah. And also I met uh, Constantino Idocola. He's a vascular physiologist. So I worked with them and I learned greatly from them, you know, is uh, how to investigate the brain. I think this is a more likely foundation of the, my whole research line now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and right, being in Minnesota, coming in at, at just the right time. And so you were you were there, you arrived at just the very beginning of, of fMRI. That's um, right. So, so that's, so I think so I was at the, you know, the theater. So it's, uh, you know, Camille called me, uh, asked me about whether I'm interested to move to Minnesota. So I didn't know anything about MRI. So I went to the Minnesota, you know, <laughs> and uh, Camille asked me to do, you know, like that's what the, the, I actually joined the uh, University of Minnesota is uh, October of the 1991. So it's uh, like, you know, that's what we started, so, you know, functional MRI at the time, those one. And yes. then Camille assigned me to do the project. So that's, uh, I mean, it's a complete look for me. You know, it's uh, Camille asked me, Call me and join those one. I didn't know anything about MRI, and I went there, and he asked me to do the project. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. That's that, and it, that worked out incredibly well. And absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> it's my luck. And then I think so. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's a uh, Camille. Uh, Camille invited me to his uh, center. It was a uh, great uh, luck for me. I, I think it's uh, yeah, the right place. And actually, I feel you know, I think I think you know, talking to a lot of people. I mean, it's sort of. You know, talked to Bob Turner and Ravi and Ken Kwong, and and even I feel the same way that it's sort of like you know there's a lot of serendipity involved in a lot of this, and and certainly you come in with some you know idea, and then and then you if, you know to the extent that you embrace it, you know it determines your career trajectory, and so but then you quickly you know you became involved in in doing fMRI in the early days, and and you also I mean you were early on mostly known for having developed uh, arterial spin labeling techniques. I mean, there certainly were some 
ideas floating around. There was a you know, group at Stanford did some, Edelman had Epistar, but you came up with FAIR. And I know Ken Kwong had, had another one and, and that you know, was slightly different than FAIR. He didn't name it anything, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but you came up with FAIR. And so maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that uh, before we get into everything else, but I, because I think that was, you, know, you, you did a lot of work with that and, and it really helped push the field. And so how did you, you know, what was your process of coming up with it and, and pushing it? So it's uh, when actually when I was uh, in University of Minnesota, so I got the so like a professor position at the University of Minnesota. Camille gave me the position also. So I was uh, thinking about what to do as my uh, as a faculty position also. So I needed to develop my independent research. So I was uh, thinking about what to do about those ones. So then at that time, is uh, Bob Edelman is uh, you know like showing around his epistar images those one. Then I was already interested about the quantification. Anything about you know my background is all the perfusion or NMR field. I'm already interested in quantification. So I actually look at his data set and I thought is oh maybe like uh, we can actually do uh, inversion recovery with without is a local so global inversion versus a slice selected inversion that can come up with a perfusion contrast. So that idea actually came watching his talks. When you actually watch his talk, that that's what I got the idea of those one. Then I came back from the, the meeting to the Minnesota, I kept implement. Then I actually implement very similar as what the Ken Kang's idea. I didn't know what the Ken Kang's work at the time. Okay, yeah. I'm apparently he actually presented the ISMR meeting before the before those one. So I actually so did a similar experiment what he actually tried to do it. Then it turned out did not work out very well. So I gave up the kickery about the quantification aspect. So yes. I decided to do the fMRI study. So I so I had the sequence. That was actually even like Christmas time. So it's uh, you know, almost like a Christmas time. You know, I got a foreigner. You know, I, I work at the laboratory there. I actually asked to my colleague going the magnet. And the first shot, I actually got a very good uh, data set. Yeah. So that's how we actually start. And then I keep involved this and I know how to do is a quantification. I got all the modeling those one. So I do the, you know, then I come up with what is a, is a acronym because it's very important. When I was a postdoc and I developed a new technology but I did not put any acronym, uh, it did not turn out very well, even though yeah. there was very good idea. So I was thinking about how I can make an acronym those one. So I come up with the idea. Yeah, that's what it's. Uh, so that is turn out be a great success. Yeah. Yeah, that was smart. That was uh, that was a good idea to 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 put an acronym on it because it actually, yeah. I mean, certainly now there's there's an entire slew of of acronyms with various tagging schemes and and acquisition schemes. But fa I mean, the principle of fair, uh, you know, was very elegant in, in the idea of just doing a global inversion versus a single single slice and getting. Uh, or the the local inversion to get all the you know and then subtracting that concept is still used today and 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 yeah I think it is important to note that that you spent a lot of work uh, a lot of time uh, working on doing actual quantification uh, of perfusion with that and it, you know it's funny because I, I I just have you know without going into the details of of the of the quantification of it I I just remember there was a lot of discussion as to you know whether you could quantify and how many assumptions you had to make. And, and you had more of a, a T1 based uh, sort of analytic 
quantification approach. And I think I, I remember actually, I still remember like Eric Wong uh, and, and yourself having an argument at one of the ISM Raman meetings because he had more of a kinetic model. And, 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 and there was, I mean, obviously there's a convergence, but, um, uh, uh, but still it was, it was a really, I remember it was an intense time as far as that's concerned. Yeah. yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I was uh, very reluctant to quantify the value because we know there's a lot of problem about the quantification because all the depending on modeling approach, whether, you know, like water is a fully diffusible or not. This is a big issue about uh, that assumption coming down to us. Right? So, you know, we, we assume the water is a fully diffusible, then that's what is a tube model coming down. So that's a lot of discussion those one. Still, you no, know, there was, issues always there. So when you quantify the value, this uh, we, whether we have proper assumption or not, this all issue. So, so I almost convinced that then I said, okay, let's uh, try to do the relative change. So you see the most of my actual research about the uh, affair is to, to determine relative blood flow change during the stimulation. Yes. yes. That's how I, you know, it's a guide my research in there. Then I try to do also the oxygen consumption changes, you know, measuring is a perfusion and the balls and yep. then is apochemic calibration, something like that. Yeah, right around 2000, I remember Rick Hogue also working on this and, and you were working on it to sort of having a CO2 calibration. We have a global flow and without activation and then you you get the ratio of flow to bold and then you can extract. I mean, this is what you have done so well is use this deep knowledge of pulse sequences and physiology to sort of uh, with these with a, uh, this creativity in, in terms of uh, you know, looking at the ratio of flow and bold to in, infer metabolic rate and, uh, and and attempt to and try to get metabolic rate information. It's, it's a hard experiment, but it, it was also useful. Yeah. So, so I can just give you a little bit background also. So I think once we actually have, I got a, it's a fair technique, I, I immediately wanted to do the same optimism. So I combined the fair and the board together. So we actually published a paper about the same estimation. Based on the, it's like a M factor, whatever we estimate about the, based on the model goes from. Then uh, it's a Minnesota, there was a 40 was down at the time. Okay, some time point it was a 40 was down. So I went to Denmark to do yep. it's a hypochemic experiment. Okay. So it's a Denmark, there was a lot of persons, labs, so they do a lot of ways, so it's a hypochemic study. So I went to his laboratory, then it's a trying to do the like a hypochemic study. And then I found that the, there was a winter time I went there, I found the paper coming from MGH. There yep. was a first hypochemic paper those. So that's how it evolved okay. that the field goes. Okay, and it's amazing how these things come up in parallel like this. At, the, at a certain time, they sort of come along and 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 write. I mean, I think, and yeah, that's right. You were, So I, I noticed that paper, right? You were, you know, Albert Getty, maybe I think was on it or, or, or um, but yeah, Olaf Paulson. There was all a person was there. So I have a couple of papers all a person those. Okay. Not okay. Abogetti, so but, but person was there. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. And so so back then, so just before we get into all the other points that I want to bring up, um, did you have a sense of of how big uh, fMRI would become? I mean, at the time I never thought about that big those ones. Right. You know, it's uh, you know, like uh, you know, we have uh, all the scanner we are doing. Is a very limited, a very few center can do this kind, that kind of study. There was one, and not many cognitive neuroscientists are interested in those one. 
I mean, I work with uh, 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 neuroscientists, system neuroscientists. You know, they they do the you do the same thing, and we, we actually work with uh, collaborating uh, people. Also, there are some sense fMRI. They are kind of a, they do the fMRI study, but kind of reluctant. It's not likely, you know, really believe it or so much. Also, so there yeah. are already some concerns. Also, so I never thought about that that big. But you know, this is just amazing. You know how big is right now, and I'm director of the Senna. You know, or this, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that um, at the time you're sort of like just thinking really hard about you know the, the the current you know climate of the certain questions that are there, and without sort of sitting back and 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 thinking about oh you know the, the overall thing. But yeah, and it was so intense and it's still intense now in a different way it keeps on changing so all right so i'm i just want to you know some of these all of these topics i have like 15 things <laughs> related to related to issues and controversies and and questions about fmri and you know it's it's truly impressive you've sort of all your work has sort of touched on all of these and what's even more impressive is that you know, and you always were comfortable with this and i never did, and a lot of people haven't is jumping into the animal models and you've done that so well and and there's so much more information you can get from the animal models as far as that's concerned but let's just start with maybe somewhat chronologically not really but but um the pre-undershoot so that's a big thing in fmri people there was controversy they saw it they didn't see it you were the only person that i saw was able to actually modulate it by controlling blood pressure which was really impressive impressive uh, do you want to maybe talk about that? Do, what is the pre-undershoot and uh, uh, why do we sometimes see it and sometimes not see it? <laughs> so, yeah, I think so, you know, it's a tip, it's a pre-undershoot, it's a tip, it's a very hard issue. I mean, early, like a late 1990s, early 2000, that was a very hard issue also. And uh, American Greenberg publishes optical imaging paper and we already thought is uh, already did is the answer for localization. Yeah. Right? yeah. So we, I, I actually start to the fMRI study. So we have, a, I have two line of research we, I did at the time. So one is the use of red models. Alfonso Silva, you know, he was working on uh, those project and we never see anything about dips. Okay, yeah. no. So, you know, in the Minnesota was like, you know, like uh, the center of the uh, origin of the dip in the sense. So it's Ravi working on those on, you know, Sharpen who was working on the dip those on. So I, I was uh, like a skeptical about the dip at the time. Because I yes. could not yeah. view, because I, I didn't see those ones. Yeah. Then it's a uh, one hand, we got a Deshi Kim. So he did a, it's a cat, uh, you know, uh, study and then Deshi and uh, Tim Duang, they are working on those, uh, this uh, cat study. And yes. we actually see the tip. Okay, I mean, so it's a tip and we map it out, looks like a column, looks very good. Yeah. And then what is it then we have a lot of controversy about uh, this, whether this is reliable or not. We know there's nature neuroscience, there's uh, uh, the letters all uh, 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 there, there. So I, I, for me, it's imperative to actually reproduce the data set. Well, I mean, it's very important to reproduce that asset. So we working very hard to try to figure out what to do. So there is a lot of variation. Sometimes yes. you do see the tip, sometimes you don't see the tip. Yeah. So yeah. one time we, I actually watched the experiment 
And one animal will reach the deep, sometimes we don't see the deep. So I watch what's happening goes on. They are related to the blood pressure, yeah. whatever reasons, okay? So I, I thought it's okay, we don't know what is the reason. It's a blood pressure changes that cause the problem. Yeah. So I actually decide to use some moderate blood pressure. So called the sodium pulsite. So we infuse the sodium pulsite. Then this is a, like a, it's a dilated vessels. Yes. And when you stimulate, there's no further dilation. But consequently, it's like low blood pressure. Yes. So you can yeah. actually moderate, increase dip. This is a complete dip, essentially. There's no even part of change those ones. Yeah. So you can make a complete dip. So there's a no blood flow changes, no blood volume change. There's a no only oxygen consumption changes. So there's a dip in this, huge dip in the sense. Oh, yes. it's just negative change. Yeah. So dip is originate from oxygen consumption changes. There's no doubt about this. So I, you know, there's some people talk about the maybe venous blood volume changes. That's not true. Venous blood yep. volume changes actually quite slow, those ones. That's not happening, those ones. So dip depending on similar to changes and the blood flow changes. It's a normal lot of condition, blood flow response very quick, very fast, then you don't see anything. Yes. Yeah. But in, in the some case, it's a disease condition or like an anesthetic condition, animal case, those one, then blood flow response is quite slow sometimes. Then you do see that. Okay. So you could moderate. So I think there was an interaction between you know, CMR2 changes and the blood flow change. Yeah. And who knows, maybe in humans, it may have been the subjects had maybe a little bit lower blood pressure or who knows? I mean, maybe, you know, that's that's never, I haven't seen the literature of that being explored in humans. So, I mean, it can certainly be done. It would be cool to see, to try to reproduce that um, in some level. Well, well, I think a certain patient groups, you might have I mean, yeah. you don't want to reduce the blood pressure. Right, that's right, right. Okay. <laughs> It's so low. I mean, you're right. You really modulated the blood pressure in these. In we these actually areas. modulate. We modulate. We almost make a, so it's a 15 millimeter mercury. That was our target value. So normally it's a blood pressure 100 millimeter mercury. So we reduce a 50 millimeter mercury. Wow. Okay. All right. And, and yeah, it was, and that actually shows that there's no like rate pulling oxygen from the blood there. So that's, yes. that was mm -hmm. cool. So maybe before I get into negative signal changes, might as well naturally go to the post undershoot then. I mean, you've also worked on that. And so, and there's also some work, you know, suggesting, as you mentioned initially, that the initial dip is maybe more localized because it's without any penumbra of like, you know, spilling over oxygenated blood, you have this oxygenation change that's localized. You also did some work on the post undershoot understanding it. And uh, you have a paper in 2007 in neuroimage that suggests that, um, you know, it's potentially more localized as well. And, and also suggesting that the that the origin is more uh, well. You, I'll let you I'll let you describe it. Okay. What you think the origin is? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, so we in the cat uh, is optical uh, uh, cat MR MR study. So we actually use a cat the visual cortical area to look at the property of the ball signal, and we do see the huge post stimulus undershoot. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is something we actually see those one. Then we actually look at the localization. This uh, you know, post-stimulus undershoot showed improved special specificity relative to middle of cortex. You know, so it's actually pretty good also. And the source is the question is what is the source? Yes. Yeah. Source is 
One, obviously, there's a prolonged blood volume change. That is a possible. If there's a prolonged blood volume change, that is also possible. The other one is, is oxygen consumption change. Somehow oxygen consumption change during the stimulation period, but blood vessel area, they are prolonged uh, as a effect. So it's a maybe like combination of the oxygen consumption changes happening during the stimulation period. And then is a prolonged is a blood volume change. Because blood volume change appear to be specific. Okay. Okay. So you think it's so, so right. There is this. It's, you know, it's complicated. I mean, yeah, it's, it's complicated. complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. Post stimulus uh, undershoot is a complicated. I don't really, uh, so like a lot of three different po possibility, you know, brother flow actually decrease during stimulation period, prolonged the venous blood volume increase, yep. and then oxygen consumption changes. So, three different parameters is there, and it's, it's a complicated. I, th I think depending on what the situation, there can be different players. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And that's a good, right. That's, that's sort of my conclusion as well. Cause it seems like, you know, there's, uh, I know Peter Wenzel, you know, argues, uh, you know, metabolic perseveration, uh, but right. Blood volume is definitely also continues on a little bit longer. Some people even claim that there's a flow dip as well, but like you said, it's, that's right. That's right. It, that's right. It, it might be, all of those, and it might vary over space. It might vary with resolution. Who knows, right? <laughs> I, mean, so, I think also depending on what the stimulus you do. I mean, you yeah. do the stimulus study, or like you do the very long stimulus, but short yep. stimulus, and the strength of the stimulus. I, I think there's a lot of things. Uh, a lot of, it's very hard to make one single conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's still room to work there. I mean, I, I remember I was able to modulate the post sheet pretty strongly by... Uh, changing, uh, you know, back, you know, in the late 90s, uh, uh, sort of with the red stimulus versus the black and white stimulus, the red stimulus had a longer, a larger post undershoot. It was still sort of curious why um, that would be, but it seems like there's potentially work there and also even might, might be relevant to your work on uh, inhibition, inhibitory activity as well. Who knows? But okay. Well, well, that's, that was your touching on that. And, and I think, yeah, that's one of these issues that's still somewhat, uh, you know, it's, it's more complicated than we, than, you know, than we're able to, to tease apart yet. So now the negative signal changes. You had a, a really nice paper in Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism 2002, talking about negative changes. And it was one of the first ones that sort of addressed it. And everyone was wondering, what are these negative changes? You actually came out with a, a, an interesting uh, hypothesis that was pretty well argued that it's sort of a, a potentially a steel effect to some degree, that there is some pooling of blood from other areas that might be a steel effect. And, but at the same time, I think that there's recent papers from you, from you as well, that, that might suggest there's, you know, it's, it's a real, you know, decrease in neural activity. So what do you think it is? What, what did you think it is? Has that changed or is that, you know, is there, once again, it could be complicated as well. I think there is a post condition can exist. In the most of cases there, you know, like uh, inhibition cause decrease of ball signal. So that's what is the most of cases also. Yeah. But in some cases, for example, like a disease condition or yeah. anesthetic condition, there is a possibility there is a stealing effect because that is a common, you actually, I mean, I did not make the term of a stealing effect because yeah. actually I found that the terminology from the physiology literature. That's what it's in the in the patient study. Patient study yes. they actually show that stealing effect. Yeah. So 
So I think it's a most of case we, we do, I think most of the OHBM people, they are do the normal volunteer. Then I think it's a negative change assume to be the inhibition. Yeah. Or like what is in the patient study, somebody do the in the patient side, then this is a little bit different story. Yeah, where the, the neurovascular coupling is somewhat altered or Right. 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 response not uh, happening very easily, something modulated in the sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it brings out the point that you have to be very careful with patient populations as far as interpreting the signal and, and, but it's, but it is interesting that, you know, right. We see negative signal changes all the time in healthy volunteers. And so, and there's, there's something real going on there in terms of uh, people don't as much look at that, but they obviously have been doing a lot. But, but another point actually probably want to point out there was one negative change it can happen a lot basically. Okay, that is a vulnerable reason is uh, when we actually do the experiment, uh, it's a uh, brother brain actually a little bit is uh, expand. Okay, then sense of volume is actually decrease. Yep. So yep. you got edges of those one. Edges actually can decrease. Is a board signal depending on is a is a is a like a partial volume change. Yes. Of the CSF and the brain, brain those. Yeah. So that area is a very have to be very careful about how you interpret that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, and especially that very high resolution too. You get, you get this might be have this more pronounced effect, and yeah. So when we do the animal study, actually we actually measure these things there. And uh, is, uh, we estimate about five micrometers or something like that, very small is a swallowing in the tail. And then there is a big change in the MR signals. Well, that's interesting. So the braid actually does expand with uh, maybe the, the increased blood volume, I, I guess a little bit pushing things, pushing things around a little, a little bit or, yeah. yeah. So what, uh, what we do, though, we actually do the spin locking experiment. So it's a T1 low experiment there. Yes. So we, we actually suppress the it's a brain signal. We only keep the CSF signal. Ah. Then we do the activation study. Then you can, actually, you can actually see it, how it changes. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So, so the T1 row is, yeah, I was going to get into that, but, but yeah. The, so T1 row is, is something that, without going into the physics of it, it actually does suppress... It suppresses the tissue. Well, we got a T1 law is uh, of the tissues are much shorter than is a CSF, just like yes. a T, you know, just like T2. These are very similar to T2. Yes. So we just use the T1 law as a you know tool set to suppress a gray mirror signal and then maintain is a CSF. Okay. Okay. And you notice that that so when you did that, you actually did notice that the CSF sort of repositioned itself in, in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think we published this one is a. Uh, uh, it's neural images. I think it's, I don't know, it's 2010 or 11, something like that. And so there was a CSF volume changes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll have to uh, look at it. You know, we should start having show notes for this as well. I realize that there's so many cool papers that, that we talk about and, and you just have a whole list of, of, of ones that are, are great. Okay, all right. So that's also a potential source of, of, of that negative signal change. So. Yeah, something to keep in mind um, as well. Uh, so, all right. So then, so then also you wrote, and this is something that people are still debating now. And I actually just saw this paper. I haven't, I didn't see it. It was a very recent paper, really beautiful review article in the Philosophical Transactions in Royal Society B, where 
where you kind of go over uh, the, the spatial specificity that, and uh, you also talk a little bit about the temporal resolution too, but uh, just review the literature really well, including your own work. Uh, so what's your, what's your thought now in terms of the upper limits of functional imaging? It seems like it, you have a number there on the, on the order of like, you know, blood is regulated at about 0.5 millimeters. Uh, and, and of course, different sequences have different pulse uh, point spread functions with the, depending on what hemodynamics they're looking at. So what, what is the upper limit in terms of spatial resolution at least? Well, it's a, I think I just want to talk about the animal because I think so I don't know this, we can you know, explore the directly to the human very easily or not. the animal study. Yeah. When we look at the capillary changes, the assumption is we already look at the microvessel changes. Then it's a blood flow, and the possibly also blood volume changes. We are looking for small vascular changes, vessel changes also. Those area is very easily we can achieve 500 micron as a, a specificity. Even like a blood volume, we are getting 100 microns. Okay. So it's a blood volume is a very specific in the mouse. Okay, mouse we are getting about 100 micron. Uh, full use half maximum spread relative to neural active site. Okay. And uh, in the blood flow is, uh, we could not measure that kind of blood flow because sensitivity is not there. Yeah. So it's very hard to measure those one. But in, when we look at the column study or layer study, we can actually see about the 500 micron, you know, like a localization. Okay. So, so it's, it is interesting that, um, let's say you're doing spin echo with a, yeah, short readout window. I think you have a flash sequence, so you don't have to worry about the the, the wide readout window with echo planar, uh, pure spin echo, and assuming that you're at a high enough field strength that you don't have any intravascular uh, blood effects. How does spin echo compare with? How does capillary fold compare with venous uh, blood volume effects? I mean, not venous, but blood vaso or something like that. Pretty very similar. I mean, I, that's what I might guess in this in sense, when you do the really true spin echo measurement, should be very similar. But I never tried to the true, you know, like a spin echo measurement. So already when we do the EPI measurement, then there was a, a window we have, there are weighting function also. So in that case is a spin echo is not as good as the brother volume response. Yeah. But yeah, if yeah. you can have a true one, then I think the spin echo should be very good. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's and it sort of speaks to I think bold is probably uh, more you're more sensitive even with the spin echo maybe than, than vaso maybe similar but but it's interesting it sort of speaks to and I always wondered I'm still wondering about this is that why is you know blood volume you know it seems like capillaries there might be you know capillary recruitment or something like that that change blood volume but it seems like blood volume is a little bit upstream and that seems like it should be slightly less localized where you have sphincters changing. And it always seems that it's not as much upstream as I thought. And so, and you had a paper that sort of separated out arterial blood volume versus, you know, uh, uh, capillary blood volume. But I don't know, what are your thoughts on, you know, it seems oh, so that it works. That, I mean, I think you are right in the sense because when you, so I think we need to look at the, it's a weighting function. Okay, how much weighting coming from the arterioles or like a penetrating arterioles in the sense, and how much you're coming to the capillary, how much you go to venous in the time domain wise. Because I think when we stimulate, so I just look at what explained my experiment. Yes, when you stimulate, we do see 
penetrating basal dilate first. I mean, so you can see there is a no localization across the layer. So even if you actually stimulate the uh, layer four input coming in there, you don't see highest response layer four. So all the, all the layer almost like a similar. First, probably like a, you know, when you stop. Yeah. Then a little bit later on, then it's a microvestor is that start to dilate. Yes. I don't know the reason basis there. There can be active dilation by somehow it's a, it's a you know, vessel dilator or the passive dilation by it's a large vessel, the pressure in there, and then dilate those. Well, then you can see start to uh, it's a small vessel or possibly the capillary is a dilate of the time. Then you wait longer, you are going to have a better special localization. First, you know, if you look at the first 10 seconds, it's not very well localized. Yeah. You have yeah. to wait about uh, 10 seconds later. Then you got to waiting the changes. Yeah. Okay, waiting is a more waiting coming to the is a small vessel. Interesting. Then, then apparently larger vessel is a, is a, is a initial dilate one is not dilate anymore. So it's, yeah. a, it's a, essentially when we look at the, the dynamic property there, then is a large vessel initially dilate, return uh, to almost like a baseline condition. Then is a micro vessel keep dilating. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so this is a somehow is a, is a time window is a very important. Yes. So when you look at the optical imaging uh, paper, optical imaging paper never say blood volume is a good choice. <laughs> they worry to complain about the blood volume is bad. You have to use a dip. Interesting. Okay. Reason is uh, optical imaging study. They already looking for a very short time window. Yeah. When you look at a very short short time window, then you have a large vessel contribution there. Yep. So you don't have any special localization. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so it's MR, we cannot scan that fast. Or like we, we have everything, you have a, it's a vessel, we also waiting there. So we tend to have a very long stimulation during the, you know, it's a further volume study. We do 20 seconds, maybe even 40 seconds stimulation period. So when you do the waiting, you are waiting in longer time period, more than 40 time period. Yes. So it's a further volume looks much better than what you expected. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And that's very interesting. Uh, that, that's, that's a, a good insight as far as the blood volume effect, but then, and maybe we'll go right into the temporal limits. When you talk about bold, you know, there's some suggestion that they're early bold because that's downstream already. Uh, that might be more localized too. So. That's right. So bold is a different story. Bold is always early part is much more localized than later on. We all yes, know yes. bold starting from like a capillary to the draining vein side there. So whenever you capture early response, that's where it occur in the capillary area, then that is a most localized. Yes, so it's a yes. different from in the, it's a, like a broader volume mechanism. Broader volume mechanism, almost like a, to me, like a later time point is a better off, you know, rather than very early time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, cool. So that's, that sort of covers the, I mean, as far as the, you know, you wrote some papers on temporal resolution, the upper limits of temporal resolution with Ravi and, and I think you've sort of spoken to that in some sense. I mean, this, you know, the pre undershoot happens within a half a second, but then of course, if you have infinite signal to noise, you can actually pull out any temporal resolution you want. It seems if you've modeled the signal well enough, but the spatial resolution is really the main work that you've done. And also, it does speak to the temporal resolution in that regard too. I mean, if you're more selective with your capillary effects, you can you can actually push the temporal resolution very high 
and obviously it's it's more sensitivity based uh, as well. So let's get into the really, I thought was the really cool parts of what your recent work has been. Uh, there's a big question as to you know with going back to like just bold contrast or whatever, uh, what influences it? And so pulling out, and I think your papers are one of the, some of the only ones of pulling out inhibition versus excitation. And you've done, you have a lot of, as I'm reading your papers, there's a lot of pieces of information uh, about the signatures of, of excitation versus inhibition. And you know, you've used uh, optogenetics to sort of pull these out. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? What are your like main findings <laughs> as far as that's concerned? Because yeah. it's really so, cool. Yeah, let's. Uh, I think it's uh, you know we you know we are all talk about the excitatory activity. So I think this is uh, understandable also. But inhibitory cells also is there. So about twenty percent is total cell population. So it's not a negligible, uh, important contributor to the you know like uh, neural control also. Question is uh, what is the uh, physical response? Whether they are significant to our measurement or not, the response. So, and obviously, like inhibitory neuron, also energy consuming process that also produce vasodilators yes. or vasoconstrictors. So, is inhibitory neuron played role? Question is how much? What is going to happen? Also, so there was like some of the literature. I mean, actually, my lab actually did also experiment to the you know, optical imaging study. So, you can actually stimulate the inhibitory neuron optogenetically, and you will see how the response coming down there. Then when you do optogenetic stimulation in the inhibitory neuron, you can actually see the increased pulse signal. Okay, I mean, there is a, because there is a blood flow increase. Yes. Okay, there is no doubt those. Yes. Now, so in the real case, so you have excited, you know, when you do the sensory stimulation, whatever we have it also, and then we are obviously going to have excited neural activity and the inhibitory neural activity come together. So right. we cannot differentiate so like, but in when you optogenetic, you can kind of differentiate when you stimulate excitatory neuron only, when you stimulate inhibitory neuron only, but this inhibitory neuron also interact with excitatory neuron. So it's a kind of it's a still is a complex issue in the sense. Yes. So yes. I can tell you that when you just stimulate inhibitory neuron by itself, you increase the blood flow. Okay. So, so when you stim in, in the cortical area, when you stimulate inhibitory neuron, then initially the increase blood flow, then inhibitory neuron interact with excitatory neuron, then decrease the blood flow. So you have a biphasic response. So initially positive response, then there is a negative response by the inhibition. Okay. Okay. So essentially yep. that's what is there. But in the normal case. We don't know that is a happen or not because this is a case we actually hitting to the inhibitory neuron very hard. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Then you maximize inhibitory neural activity, but normal what we are doing now is the actual stimulation study. Then there is only part of the neural the inhibitory neuron involved, and uh, we don't know what contribution to the fMRI response. So when you characterize, you know, our so inhibitory neuron based hemodynamic response. Excited neuron hemodynamic response, inhibited neuron hemodynamic response appear to be faster than excited neuron driven, you know, it's a hemodynamic response. The question is, I don't know why, you know, is that there is a, it's a faster, they're probably like a faster, somehow it's a faster modulator or something like that. You know, there is a nitro oxide, it yep. 
by the inhibitor neuron, then they hit it the it's a vessel right away, they dilate quickly those. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, I mean, it's right. So there might be a, a different mechanism, like, you know, using nitric oxide versus maybe some, maybe a neurogenic uh, uh, mechanism with excitatory, but it could be interesting then. So, so then there's there, definitely, right. definitely there is different basal uh, regulator. That's the different, uh, you know, that's a different, different, different person. Okay. Okay. That's interesting in itself. And have you tried, um, you know, it seems like it would be interesting then to uh, maybe look at the, the flow to bold rate. I mean, you know, uh, flow to bold ratio to maybe pull out. I mean, it's hard to spatially differentiate because there's so much mix as far as looking at like, you know, meta, trying to quantify metabolic rate or, or looking at flow to bold ratio with, you know, to map out areas maybe where there's more, a little bit more inhibition or less inhibition with that. And, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we didn't do that, some, but we actually, in the olfactory bulb study, we actually, you have a, some, I mean, like, a, you know, I mean, so I think a certain brain area, you know, it's a striatum, or like a, it's olfactory bulb, some granular lay, layer, there is only inhibitory neuron. Okay. So if, yeah, if we want to investigate those one, we can actually see it, it's just inhibitory neuron area. So there is an obvious increase to the flow. Uh, also, you know, when you activate those inhibitor blood flow, as also oxygen consumption increase. But in the cortical area, they're all mixed together. There's yeah. a, you know, 80% excited neuron, 20% inhibitory neuron, they're all interact with each other. So it's very hard to tease out. Yeah. So if you want to tease out, then we, we have to use a different, you know, area, there's a subcortical area or olfactory bulb. Then people yeah. already complain about this not part of the cortical area. So yes. Yeah, and so there's right. Okay, so it's 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 a hard, it's still a hard problem, but at least you're how getting to, some hooks to, into it. Yeah, how to do on? And then I, another thing is, uh, I think, interesting point you have to be look at those. And the inhibitory neuron, there's a lot of subtypes. So the called like uh, you know like uh, PB neuron, some of the statin neuron, you know MPY, nitric oxide. There's a subunit those one, and this subunit behavior differently to the hemodynamic response. PB neurons supposed to be, they are most popular, it's most common PB neuron, parabolic neuron, do not produce any vasodilators, vasodilators. So it's when you, so it's when you PB neuron probably does not change any hemodynamic response. Interesting. So, okay. so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite complicated. You know, yeah. It's, it's a, neuron is a quite complicated. Yeah, and, it, and the, the temporal dynamics are so rapid that it's hard to pull out anything, you know, using the transients of bold or things like that. I know that, you know, Camille Illudag had had an interesting paper sort of trying to, you know, suggest that certain transients might be action of in, inhibition or whatever, but but it's so hard to do that as well. I mean, there's, you know, excitation, then there's way, maybe a wave of inhibition, and it's all happens. And it's all happening, and then this measurement is very limited. You yeah, have only yeah. one measurement. So you need to have a decomposed dose and measurement with a different is information dose one and may 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 not be right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Well, that's that's the state of it though. But I I you know your papers though I I, I have not seen people try to address this and that and you you do make some real interesting as you were mentioning the observations about the relationship between uh, the, the the flow and metabolism for both. So that's that's a start and that's cool. So, okay, so why don't we jump to, what's your conclusion as far as, 
if you have a paralyzed animal versus anesthetized and then anesthetized with the various types of anesthetic, what gives people, it's hard to say most reliable because it all depends on their question, but uh, what would you say is your summary of your work with various anesthetics and comparing to awake? I mean, cause there's, you work with that so much with your animal models that it's, you probably thought a lot about that. <laughs> you know, when I was a state, whenever we actually submit the NIH claim proposal, there is always a complaint about the anesthesia. You know, you use an anesthetic animal and how you interpret your data to the human. So yep. that was, uh, you know, always questioned those one. So there was a some anesthesia better than others. I mean, in, in terms of so some is a very close awake condition. Uh, people use uh, called the taxam the tomidin blood for it's a uh, uh, mimic the uh, awake condition. So it's uh, like uh, you know that's uh, one, and then some of anesthesia is GABA uh, agonist like isoflurane GABA agonist. Then there's a uh, suppressed neural activity as well as you know hemodynamic response. So it's uh, that is uh, not easy to interpret data set, and then we use a lot of things ketamine zyrogen. Ketamine is uh, an MDA as uh, antagonist those one. This yeah. one is actually a little bit of disinhibition. So we like this one because we actually see a lot of activity in the cortical area. So easy yeah. to detect the uh, you know, fMRI signal. So direct translation from animal data to awake or human condition have to be careful, all right? Yes. But we have to take the essence of the finding. Yeah. You know, whether like uh, what is the, the true finding coming up? Okay, capillary response is specific or how specific, you know, when is happening. Those one is a change in the different energy, we change the different time domain, but general trend, general idea is going to be very similar. So how much we localize, maybe awake conditions, uh, maybe a little bit le less localized, but broader volume better choice, then you got a broader volume is a better choice. So I think you still need to have a recalibrate somehow in the human. Yes. But is uh, but is I think you got a general concept or idea can be translated. That's how I I see those. Okay. Okay. I don't know. It's clear to you or something like that. Um. Yeah. No. It it is clear. Um. Right. It, 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 each one does a certain thing, and and that it's, it might make a difference in some cases, but it, it may not make a it difference. It might make a difference. There's obviously, you know, it's awake condition is obviously the best way to do experiment, but problem is not easy to do awake condition. Yeah. Because a lot of time, fMRI study, we need to have a very high uh, signal to noise. We need a very high uh, special resolution because you know, brain is very small. So if you want to try to match the human resolution, human brain resolution. Yeah. Then we need to have a much smaller box size. Yes. So sensitivity very low. Yeah. And uh, then we need to do the lot of average. So without averaging, it's very hard to investigate anything. So then the awake condition animals moving, so it's very hard to, you, know, you can train them. But you know, we, did we actually published one paper, awake versus an inside animal. Yes. After yeah. one start, I say, okay, that's it. And I don't want to do anymore. It is a take a long time, and I did not find anything is actually much different. You know, finding yeah. it's not a whole lot different. What I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. That's telling in itself, and it's helpful, right? Right. And it's like you said, it's a really hard experiment to to make a really fair comparison. Yeah. Well, if really people want to do it, or like their life is basically, I want to have a, you know, awake is behaving animal. So, you know, awake is not important. We need to have a behaving animal. 
So you, if you want to do the real neuroscience type of question, you need to have a mice inside the magnet. They do the awake and the behaving. Now, how you can do the behaving uh, anymore inside the magnet? It's very hard to do it. And yeah. you can do a certain experiment, but most people don't, want, most neuroscientists don't want to do that kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. That's, yeah. So that's at least comforting in some sense with the people who are doing animal models that there's not, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you have to really understand the anesthetic and what the effects are, but for the most part, for instance, using ketamine is, is a you know, reasonable thing to do as far as that's concerned. So, all right, well, let's get on to other things. Uh, as we list, go down the list, we're, we're yeah. getting along. Um, so not to, not to bring up any too much controversy, but you, you actually, I mean, I, I had Denis Libby Han on the, on the podcast and he, uh, you know, he's obviously done a lot of great work and he's a very big proponent. He, he believes strongly in the idea uh, that uh, diffusion changes, diffusion coefficient goes down slightly with activation because intracellular uh, or, or, or you know, intracellular the cells expand and, and you have, you know, near the membrane, you have more uh, low diffusion uh, spins. You had one paper we've tried to look for it. We couldn't see it that well. And you have you had one paper that you know suggested it was more vascular. Um, and, you know, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I know this uh, topic very well. And Ben's uh, Libyan uh, published paper. After that, is we actually saw some studies of ADC measurement. Uh, so I think there is a couple of issues. One is obviously vascular contribution one factor. But you can remove it. If you use very high B value, you can remove it. You still have ADC change, even you after you remove. Okay. It's a, it's a vascular component. Question is, what is that? Yes. Is that truly coming from cellular signal or something else? That's, I think, the main question is to me. Yes. So it's a, we did not publish. But we actually did the experiment. Then I decided to just record that kind of project in my lab. Then we did not actually, we stopped the project. Then we end up the, the project also. But I can tell you what the study we did in there. So we did the ADC measurement in the in this, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is animal. Then we inject the country stage and we can get rid of the intravascular system. So there was no intravascular signal. So we purely looking for, you know, like uh, extra vascular in the tissue signal. Yes. Then what we did, we did a, is a hypercapnia study, you know, and as well as, you know, like a stimulation study. When we do see the ADC change, hypercapnia, as well as functional study. Yes. Well, like yes. this is the same thing as a color miller soy. Right, exactly. Well, like, so my question is, why happened? Yeah. So, so you know, it's a, so we actually did uh, so we applied uh, uh, it's a gradient different direction. It's a different direction in, in the basically is a, is a hypercapnia study. We actually applied a different direction. We want to see whether directional component. We do see the directional component. Huh. Reason is what we are thinking is a vessel is dilated. Okay, then intravascular is a, is a base extravascular pool. They are distorted, shapes are changes. Huh. Then there was a fixed space, there was one. Then extravascular is a space, is going to be a little bit distorted. Yeah. Boundaries change. 
but that extravascular space, it still seems like that space is still high enough diffusion coefficient that that would be gone in a high B well, factor, like if it's well, CSF or in, something. Or, well, no, so intravascular is gone. But yeah. extravascular signal is still there. Okay, so, so it's not CSF or anything. It's something there. It's but it's, uh, when you distort it, there are, then it's uh, ADC is a change, diffusion coefficient changes because the boundaries are changes. Okay, okay. You, you see that. So ADC is, is a change during the stimulation, but most likely due to morphological change by the blood vessel, the blood wall changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Okay, that's a good, that's a reasonable hypothesis. Although, so it seems like you can address that by doing like, you know, right, change, like you said, changing the direction of the gradients, doing isotropic. Yeah, we um, actually changed the direction. And we actually saw is uh, the directional component. Some direction is much yeah. more than others. What that means is that that direction is with morphological changes. That's Okay, that's interesting. so we actually did that experiment. We almost like a draft this, uh, you know, uh, paper. Then sometime point I say, okay, oh, okay, diffusion, we are not interested anymore. We want to just move on to the next project. <laughs> so we, well, we didn't publish the paper, but that's what the, our finding. Then after that, I think we never touched uh, anything about ADC. Okay, okay. And uh, yeah, no, that was, uh, that's interesting. So it's not the intravascular signal. It's not the blood. It's just um, morphologic well, changes of the tissue uh, being extra, compressed. Extravascular, extracellular yep. space. Yes. Okay, yes. something like that. Okay, I don't know. That, yeah. that, is, uh, that is my idea. And the, another thing is a very low sensitivity. Sensitivity is so poor. Is is uh, you know not as good as anything else what I'm going to use in the sense. Much worse than is a perfusion. Much worse than is a blood volume study, and I don't want to use the you know diffusion study, even their major, you know, like intracellular uh, ADC changes. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's that was a that was a good that was new information. I think that you know, like I said, I think a lot of people don't necessarily. I mean, there's so much literature out there, and uh, it's hard for anyone to follow all of it. And that's that was that was useful to know. Well, there's something to think about also, right? Something to think about, you know, how yeah. does ADC change during the hypercapnia? Yeah. You know, unless there's a, you know, unless there's a neural component to hypercapnia. Well, but, people are uh, talking about neural component, but it's, uh, there was not really, I mean, we, I mean. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, certainly hypercapnia is a beautiful way of, you know, testing that. And um, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so, okay, well, let's keep the controversy going. So how about uh, other types of contrast? Uh, do, do you see, I mean, you know, something that I care about a little bit is uh, somewhat, uh, maybe I've dropped it recently just because I felt that it wasn't possible or it might not be possible yet, but it's still there, I think, is the idea of neural current imaging. Have you ever in your experiments seen anything that is might be suggestive that your animal studies or whatever of Neural current effects or or effects that are non-bold. Let's just say non-bold. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I mean, you tried a lot about the direct current measurement also, and I did not try by myself because I figured out sensitivity is very low. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be practical. Or like even if it's uh, I can detect, it's uh, maybe there. So it's uh, it's hard to use for my research. My point is uh, I don't want to chasing around also. So so it's uh, I did not chasing around. That uh, is a measurement, but I actually did like a non-bold measurement with a spin log mes measurement. 
So okay. I mentioned about spin lock Boltzmann. So if you remove all the Pascal component, you can actually do the spin lock study. And then we do see the actually the cellular component. Okay. And we are, we are trying to see what exactly is not little vascular one, how we can get a spin lock or like tion low measurement, we do see those one. So we think this is late to the so chemical exchange. Oh, really? Glucose, hydrogen, and uh, it's a water proton. They are exchanged. We know there's a glucose, so there's exchange between, chemical exchange between glucose, hydroxyl group, and the water proton. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then when you have concentration changes or pH change, this exchange rate is going to change. Okay. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, so we actually, we measure, so we actually probably published uh, 2013 or something like a neuro image about the non support uh, effect or something. And it's there. And then we actually trying to utilize this idea to do, you know, like a more like routine experiment. So question is, can you actually use a glucose sensitive uh, fMRI study to detect you know, metabolism area. And that's yes. kind of idea we actually there. So we use a uh, like spin up study tuned to the glucose, for example, glucose frequency those one. And we did a lot of follow-up study, even at the 15.2 Tesla, yeah. we could not detect. Oh. It's a reliable. Yeah. I mean, when we do the dead experiment, we do crazy uh, averaging in the sense. So the, the conceptual is working very well, but percentage is very low. Okay. Okay. So, so it's not easy to utilize this idea for our measurement. Okay. Okay. There was a, it's like, a, for example, it's a, it's a Neurospin actually published one of the paper about SES, the group called the SES FMRI. Okay. I don't know if you remember those one. It's kind of similar type of idea. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're looking at the exchange and, it, and it's actually affecting the signal enough that, yeah, obviously it's extremely very small, small. Very yeah. small. I would like to say, I, I would like to recommend, I would not recommend this one because yeah. uh, it's a very small and just more like a conceptual idea in the sense. Okay, yeah. When glucose concentration changes and, uh, you know, you can detect uh, by MR, somehow it's a glucose uh, chemical exchange sensitive properties using that the property. Yeah, that's... Okay, well, that's something also that uh, is something to think about, right? At the limits of our sensitivity, you know, we'll, we'll improve our sensitivity at maybe with even higher field strengths or, or other, who knows? <laughs> but that's, but, but, the, but I think what's useful about that is that just that it sort of illustrates still that, that MRI, we're still discovering what, you know, the interplay between physiology and what MRI can see. And, and, and that's, this is how it's been for the last, 40 years and it's been still continues on in this sense. And so you're, you know, you're, this is amazing work. And so I'm, I, so, so there's, there's one thing, there's two more papers I want to talk about. Then we'll get on to other things. I just, <laughs> I just have to just, I, I, this is not typical of, of podcasts where I just kind of list off there's, uh, but you've covered everything and it's important to actually bring this out. Um, one of the coolest papers I saw uh, in 2021 was the the beautiful experiment where you 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 looked at back to revisit temporal resolution. You looked at the temporal leg. You're looking at you know cortical or subcortical areas, and you're doing optogenetics to stimulate the cortex to to look at that direction flow down to subcortex. But then you're doing sensory stimulation to look at 
the other direction, and you're able to see temporal differences between these subcortical areas that change direction depending on which end you're simulating from. Did you want to mention that just a little bit? Because it, it, it sort of speaks to, it sort of opens up the idea that you can look at directional information flow if you do it right with fMRI. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, there was uh, my students, is, uh, he was interested to look at the temporal dynamics. So I initially thought about this crazy idea, you know, it's a, <laughs> you know, you know, you've got, you've got hemodynamic response, you measure is a dynamic difference there. So he measured anyway. So basically we have like a, so in our 15.2 mouse fMRI study, we can see activity thalamus and also primary sensory cortical area and the secondary or higher order uh, thalamic nuclei too. So we have a uh, multiple area we see those ones. Yes. So when you do the sensory stimulation, we do see somehow is a is a in a bold response coming to primary uh, thalamic cortical area respond very first. Then next is a is a primary sensory cortical area. So you can thalamus to cortex. Okay. Then cortex to higher order thalamic nuclei. Huh. And other cortical area, so huh. you can. You, so, so initially, I, th I thought is okay. One idea you could have it. Well, this is a something to do with a hemodynamic response function different area because we know is a different uh, yeah. area. We have a different response function. Yes, and and so that's one of the issues. And second thing is we thought about okay, you know, so we have a primary. Thalamic nuclei called the, you know, so is a BPL, and the other one is high order thalamic nuclei actually side by side. They are very close, so should have a very similar hemodynamic response function, but actually so it's a ephemeral response are quite different. The high order much lower lag to the primary one. So we thought it's something to do with actually so you know it's information flow. Yes, yes. Well, so so then we need to reverse the order. So we actually do the optogenetically stimulate the primary motor area. Then this uh, one is a sensor project to the primary sensory area, primary sensory area project to the salamic nuclei. So reverse order, we actually measure again, seems like uh, actually our measurement correct. <laughs> All right. So it's a, it's a quite interesting one. So it's a question is now is how you explain. So we actually do also hypercapnia study. We do the CO2 challenge. We actually do the experiment. So we do the old experiment. Then we also look at the layer. You know, it's a, a somatosensory area where the layer for coming out first. So we look at all of those. So looks like everything match. Okay. Now, there is a, there is a very scary, very fundamental issue is why do we see it? You know, we never expect to see that well in the sense because we are making hemodynamic response. And you're just using pole, actually. Like so we use the pole. We use yeah. the pole. So we using the board. And then, so one basic idea is we must use, see the capillary early time point. So we use a 15.2 Tesla scanner. So it's a very high magnetic field. So yeah. maybe like sensitizing the capillary area. So we must detect capillary response at early time point. So that's one is of the conclusion there. Second is why we actually capture this uh, is like uh, information flow order with the bold fMRI. I mean, this is a more fundamental question though. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
I don't really have answer. So only thing I can speculate idea. When you measure neural activity, time difference, they only look at the first spike. First spike coming to the thalamus, first spike coming from the sensory area. They say it is a five millisecond time. Right, it's so short. Yeah. It's a short, short. Right? And these, these legs are a little bit longer. Right. These it's are much longer. Much yeah. longer. So it's a basically, so, you know, it's much longer. So now, why is it happening? And this is the only thing is you talk about universal coupling issue. Okay. So, so it's a, my speculation is coming out in the, in the mentioned in the paper. Somehow it's a hemodynamic response or capillary response is related to the cumulative synchronized neural activity. Okay. If not a synchronized, then it's not likely active very easy. So it have to be somehow synchronized. So, so if you consider that idea, then you coming to the thalamus, to the project to next cortical area, then there was initially is a, you know, like, a, then is a synchronized signal coming in, then going to the higher order area, will be less synchronized. Keep, when you go to the next downstream sequence there, they are less, less synchronized, probably less, less activity. Maybe, okay. So it will take a longer time to respond is a response, a capital response. I don't know. I just completely is a speculative argument. Yeah. So it's a need like kind of modeling. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a kind of a neural modeling somehow is okay. You know, question is the heart, what is the induced hemodynamic response? Then you can accumulate those uh, you know, synchrony, all yeah. those ones. You can so that's push. interesting. So it's, it seems like you could, one could try to model this, like, you know, a coupled system with some legs, but then sort of this feedback. And if they, if they then convolved it with a hemodynamic response, can they reproduce your results in that regard? If they tweak, like, like you're saying, like the, the, you know, the, there's a coupling factor and there's a latency factor that's really short, but the coupling factor maybe might extend out these sort of things. I think the synchrony is a very important factor though. So because we actually have a, so it's a Mina, so there was another faculty in our center there and she's doing the, is a two proton uh, study. She looking for calcium activity. When you look at the, it's a, it's a, it's a individual cells in the cell calcium activity, when you synchronize, it responds much faster. It's not a synchronize, even though it's amount is similar, then synchrony is low, then you actually respond very slow. Interesting. So, 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 so I think it's a somehow cellular synchrony is a kind of important appear to be factors. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I, I know you're I see what you're saying. Huh. Okay. All right. So it's a, it, all right. Okay. So it's, it's not easy to bring into the MRI measurement because it's like kind of, it's not easy. So this is a more like optical, you know, study and you do the two photon study, then you look at the capillary dynamics, those one. Then look at the, all the cellular activity, see how they are modulate in the sense. So you can have same neural activity without the co correlation, coherence. Yeah. Okay. Or you have, you know, you know, basically you change the coherence somehow. Yes. You can modulate the, you know, hemodynamic response. Yeah, that's that's hard to get an intuitive sense of because, um, yeah, you're trying to. I'm trying to think of, you know, right. So you're driving the magnitude of the response based on the level of. The, the amount of synchrony and somehow that's affecting the leg in that regard. It's sort of going. So, so, so there is a somehow, it's, a, it's a probably synchronized and there's a more neurovascular modulator is probably released. But like then it's a yeah. probably reached a certain threshold. 
yeah. to kick into uh, the physical response. Got it. Okay. It. So, so if you are not is a synchronized there, but they release, they're, but they're not accumulating. Yeah. Release it, then it's washed out very quickly somehow. Yeah. Lose it. Yeah. I got it. Okay. All right. so, so, so something is like a timing of the synchronous important reason is maybe like a uh, vascular regulator, modulator, somehow they release their same time, then increase the concentration. Yes, yes. Okay, then you respond, you hit the, the vessel dose. Yeah. I mean, this is completely speculative. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, okay. So, right. And I think actually that's, a, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you, you have this observation that's very clear and it works in both directions. And it sort of forces us to rethink things in this regard, in terms of neurovascular coupling and how that could translate to, yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, I like the idea of somehow, you know, having this accumulation of activity or these valves that are released based on this, the synchrony sort of generating that. And then that pops up and at just the right amounts of time as down the network. I have to think about that more. And it would be, I think that's a perfect thing to try to model. Uh, you could, it seems like you sh one should be able to just model that and, and to explain it because it doesn't come easily in some sense to the, as far as the intuition is concerned. But yeah, that's cool. That's cool. But maybe I think this is, is what the modeling exercise. I think it's a neat model. So, so we have observation. Yeah. Then we match, you know, you got to change the model somehow to match this uh, experimental data set. Then we can assuming that we can then test out what kind of idea we can try in experimentally, or like we can test that, uh, you know, it's a probably model somehow different way there, then we can prove it or disprove yep. it model in, in a sense. Yes. Yeah. And this is also, right, this is what I, what I love about how you go about things is in the sense that you, you know, it's very, right. I mean, every experiment generates sort of some questions and then you just dig in and you keep on digging. Um, as far as that's concerned, there's a couple of things I skipped, but you know, there's so many things you've looked at. One thing I that's just want to mention briefly, that's because it's so hot off the presses in terms of you did looking at, you know, you're, you're sort of delving into resting state a little bit and you did, uh, you know, once again, working with optogenetics, you've done optogenetic silencing of excitatory, excitatory neurons and, uh, or maybe also in, I, I and, and how did that, and that profoundly changed the resting state correlations um, as far as that's concerned. So, how, so maybe mention that really quickly. Yeah. PNAS 2022. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so when you do the like resting state, the resting state ephemera is very hot now. Like we do look at a lot of correlation. We see the activity in the sense. So it's assumption is in the resting state, they are fluctuating and fluctuation related to the neural communication. That's what is a, we are underlying assumption. So, so if you do the silencing one part of the brain area, then that area is uh, whatever network area, then also suppressed together because there was a network. Yes. So we are looking for essentially being silencing part of the brain optogenetically. Then we want to see that downstream area right. somehow is a reduced signal together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I can consider it's a true resting state network. Yes. All right. Yes. So, so, so what is a, we are doing is a typical resting state network. We just look at the correlation. You don't really see the causality in the sense. Right. In this no. case, we knock down the one area, we see which area changes, 
you can actually see the effective connectivity from that stimulation site. Yes. Okay, that's what is the whole idea we have with those one. So what we use there, so we can optogenetically, you can silence excited neuron directly okay. or indirectly. So we actually use indirect process. Reason is you excite inhibitory neuron, then inhibitory neuron suppress excited neuron. Yep. That is the indirect pathway. And this is what the neuroscientists use very commonly. It's yes. so, so, you know, I think this is a, what, how we tease out resting state connectivity. So what we do the experiment, when we do the experiment, so we actually put the silencing primary somatosensory cortex area, primary motor cortical area, and the secondary somatosensory we silencing those one. Then we actually found the net resting state network, resting state network mostly Ipsilateral side of the somatosensory network. That means silencing that only one hemisphere, not the post hemisphere. Okay. Including thalamic okay. nuclei, all those uh, sensory motor areas. Okay. okay. In typical resting state, you look at the bilateral. Okay. Yeah. In a bilateral activity there. So, what, is, what we actually looking for bilateral resting state activity, really meaning direct communication between two hemispheres. Okay, okay. So like there's a, yeah. there a modulate together, but it's not like a direct, you know, cortical, cortical modulation. There are something else going. Yeah, so, so if there were this direct connectivity, if you silenced it, it would just, it would suppress the other side is... That's right, that's exactly the other side, same amount. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So it's sort of like a, there's some source. That's right, some, some source going to both hemisphere. Right, right. That's... That's great. And, and I think, right, people have suggested, right, there's some subcortical, you know, uh, source and that sort of thing, but this is direct proof of that. I, I really like that. I, that's a Yeah, yes, problem is so far is all the optogenic stimulation studies, they're mostly, they are excited. They excite, excite the neuron, they look at the network. Yes. Okay. So it's what we are, our approach is, so we always interest about the inhibition because inhibition is a, is a useful tool dissect the circuit because you don't inhibit then you don't know is whether single synaptic connection or polysynaptic connection. You have no idea what you are looking for those one. When you're silencing, then you can tease out one at a time. Yes, yes. That's that's really cool. That's very cool. So it, it, I mean, it seems that, right, it, it makes me start to think about layers uh, in that regard. You can start to maybe tease apart you know, aside from once again, just using resting state and having seed voxels in various areas and see the layer activity, you can start to actually tease apart true to true uh, functional neuroanatomy in terms of silencing. I don't know how accurate you can get with optogenetics, but silencing individual layers or uh, and that sort of thing. You can, you can, you can, you can silence individual layers. They okay. have a uh, transgenic mouse model. They have a certain specific layer. Have a certain so it's a key line. You can inject the virus in that, that specific uh, it's a layer, then it's work out. Uh, you can just target the specific layers. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah. I mean, not only not only from looking at the connectivity resting state and really probing that, but also just looking at the mouse behavior. I mean, obviously they're 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 unfortunately they're anesthetized, so it's hard to do. But no, no, no. You can do the awake study. So what 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 we usually usually do is we do two ways in the sense. So we do a lot of this study. We do the awake condition is a behavior study. We actually okay. trying to find out what is a, this is the impact in the whatever you do silencing 
certain part of the brain how to change the behavior. Yes. yes. Okay, you know what's going on. Then we use a, the same mouse line. Essentially, we do the fMRI study. Yeah, okay. But it's, it's just like one is awake condition. You know what the property of those, uh, like, uh, you know, silencing in the sense, how the change in the behavior. Then we got to combine with the fMRI. That is, that is so nice. That's, <laughs> there are so many experiments that you could so, do. So we, 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 <laughs> so we have a recently what we do is like we have a chronic uh, pain model in the mouse in the sense. So when we do the ACC, we silencing ACC, then is there is an, the animal does not feel the pain. Okay, you, you suppress the pain in the cell. So ACC is a key component and this is a, it's a pain circuit. Then we actually use fMRI because the ACC connect to a lot of different places. Yep. All right, yep. question is what exactly ACC, which circuit is specifically to modulate this uh, pain, uh, pain circuit those. Yes. So then we actually is, uh, is, uh, then do the fMRI study. Then we find the, which circuit is likely the source. Then we do the another optogenetic study, ACC2, whatever circuit, circuit, circuit specific optogenetic modulation. We want to see whether behavior keep changing the same manner as ACC modulation. So you can kind of use MRI, fMRI used as the kind of tool set to so narrow down the circuit in the sense yes. of what the possible circuit for your next research. That is so cool, right? <laughs> yeah, using the general fMRI, narrow it down, do that specific circuit and, and then look at the behavior, but then, then you can dig in deeper and look at you know, very specific types of within that circuit. That's cool. That's so that's, that's what is the, we actually the labs about the pushing in the direction. So we looking for behavior, you know, like a circuit, uh, you know, your circuit uh, determined by, for example, ephemera. Yeah, yeah, that's, and I really don't know. I, I'm not aware of other groups that are doing that or things, there might be some groups doing things somewhat like it. I mean, people are doing calcium imaging and things like that, but, but, but and certainly there are groups doing optogenetics, but, but not in this way. And this is really, this is really directly relevant to, you know, the whole field of resting state and, and trying to figure out um, uh, you know, what it means. So this is- Well, I think it's useful to your science community. A lot of your scientists don't really care about the uh, uh, fMRI research. You know, you talk to a uh, system neuroscientist, you talk to them, they say, oh, so we can do these things. Why we need to have a uh, fMRI, you know? Right. Uh, I think this is what we can offer is uh, we can do the whole brain. Yep. You know, it's a uh, network information to them and that they can actually, they can gather some information what the target is a good target for their next research. Yeah, so it's a tool for iterating and getting focused on the on the target. But then also, of course, you know, it iterates back and then as you know about what's happening, then you look at the FRI signal and you say, oh, that this is a signature of, of what's going on in this way. So you can, it helps fMRI and fMRI helps this. That's right. So I think this, uh, I think if you, this, I have another example, I think we did not publish yet there. So we have, uh, we're working on the autism model in the sense. So this autism uh, is a mouse, uh, they have a hyperactivity. It's a sensory hyperactivity. So we want to know what the sensory hyperactivity means in the fMRI. So we actually did experiment. We actually observed hyperactivity in the sensory circuit. Okay. So essentially what the behavior, what they observe in the sense, and then is uh, fMRI measurement. Even we do the anesthetizing measurement, we actually see the hyperactivity in the sensory circuit and they actually match it quite well. 
That's cool. That's great. That's such good work. It is. <laughs> I mean, because the answers are so clear. I mean, it's like, it's just there. It's that's the information's there and this is what we did and, and, and it has direct implications. So it's, that's, that's, I'm, yeah, that's, it's It seems like your work is building momentum. And so obviously just to mention briefly uh, to just give everyone a perspective, I know we're, we're going a little bit over time, but this is really, we're just, so we covered all the, most of the topics and obviously there's many more we could cover, but that just hopefully gives an overview a little bit about what you're doing. So as, as far as all the tools that you've used that have been helpful, I mean, you've worked with, you know, everything from, you know, two photon to optogenetics, optical imaging. So what has been a good compliment aside from, so you've been mentioning optogenetics, but other things that have been useful as far as that's concerned. Well, obviously optogenetics is very useful. I mentioned already. And I think I found this optical imaging quite useful for us. And even though optical imaging, we, optical imaging, we can measure calcium, wide field calcium imaging, as well as intrinsic optical imaging. Yes. So intrinsic optical imaging is very similar to the fMRI signal but we sensitivity much better off. So much easier we can try to figure out what's going on before we actually start the fMRI study. fMRI study sensitivity very low. So, I mean, I usually actually try to do intrinsic optical imaging first, then nail down the what I want to do fMRI study. Then you, I focus on those uh, subset of the optical imaging study to the fMRI. So I think yes. the intrinsic optical imaging was very useful and we still have to use uh, intrinsic optical imaging for our research. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, and, and, and so for intrinsic optical imaging as well, I mean, you can potentially be sensitive to calcium. Uh, we have to do the calcium. So we have a multi-wavelength. So we have to have a three wavelength system. So we have a two wavelengths in the intrinsic imaging and one wavelength of calcium. So we actually do all this together. So we recently built a, a optical system inside the MRI. So we have an MRI scanner, then we built all these things so MRI together. So we actually try to acquire whole thing with the fMRI together. So it's optics and fMRI and uh, you know then optogenic stimulation. So we have a, you know, pretty much like what the Yale group did as a lake at all the papers. So we yes. have a similar system and then in top of the optogenic stimulation. That's what we built now. And I think this is going to be presented uh, this upcoming ICMR meetings. That's, that's great. That's great. So that naturally leads us into, I mean, so you, right. So you, so you went from Minnesota to uh, Pittsburgh and then from Pittsburgh to where you are right now uh, in Seoul. Why don't you, I mean, I, I visited your center a few years ago and I was just blown away with everything that you had. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful facility. Um, might want to talk about it, maybe just to mention a little bit about what what, if, what's, what its capabilities are and the yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you. I think this is a, it's a great opportunity to talk about my center, those one. So, you know, I came to Korea like uh, nine, uh, 2013. Uh, to set up the new imaging center. When I came to Korea, there was nothing there. So we built a new building. So we designed the building, uh, trying to do neuroimaging research those one. Then we recruit a lot of neuroscientists. We have a monkey neurophysiologist. We have a human fMRI scientist we recruited there. We also as a computational neuroscientist we recruited there. 
and we uh, we also also recruit a bunch of the MR scientists in the Senate also. So it's, a, it's, a, it's essentially coveraging about the MR and the optics, and uh, then it's a electrophysiology and the cognitive neuroscience research like that. And then we, so I basically, so we keep the tool set there. So I'm an MR scientist, obviously we, I uh, so bought the four scanner, and the two animal scanner, this is my baby, in the sensor 9.40, MR scanner and the 15.2 uh, animal scanner for my own research. And I also bought the two human scanner, 3T Prisma uh, and the 70 Terra system a uh, few years ago. So we have, uh, you know, equipped uh, is a state of the uh, human fMRI research program. And we also have a two photon microscopy system and uh, various optics. And uh, we have uh, is a monkey housing facility as well as uh, like rodent housing facility. So we do covering like electrophysiology in the mouse and the monkey and optics in the mouse and fMRI is mouse, monkey, and the human. So we trying to do more like a cross species, multi-modal, you know, multi-modal uh, multi neuroimaging research in, in the center. So I think that we cover, you know, like more like a technology development like myself and the Camille Uldaks. And we have a uh, kind of neuroscientists that they utilize those tool set uh, to do their research those ones. So I think it's a combination between you know neuroscience research and uh, technology research. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I got to influence a lot of from the neuroscientists because now my research is going to very much have a system neuroscience. Reason is my colleague, other system neuroscientists, they are keep complaining about my technology because they do not provide any useful information. So, <laughs> yeah. so I devise idea trying to be useful. So I think yeah. it's, a, it's a very good combination between the meso development and also so it's a neuroscience program. Yeah, that's it's quite exciting. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's so many tools, and and I and I do I love how it's laid out with with it's not just people doing you know the physiology and the technical stuff. It's the neuroscientists as well that are really good neuroscientists who are sort of thinking carefully at the limits of the technology as well about what questions they can ask. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful synergy and it's really nice. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a critical mass of people too, that, that you have a lot of buzz of, of conversations and, uh, and, and collaborations going on. So it's, I, I just think it's just right. Um, it's, I think it's, it's uh, having everybody in the same place, in the office next to yourself, next to each other. That's very important. You know, yeah. in the United States, you know, I was there, you know, you are there. And so a lot of it's good people around there. Right. It's a, it's a pretty far away different building and you need to make a special appointment like that. It's so much harder to get a casual conversation. Yes. So I think so what we are saying is uh, all the people who are interested in brain research, whether method or like a you know, monkey or human computation, they are all the offices uh, side by side. I think we do a lot of interaction. They make a difference in the sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes a huge difference. And you might be back as far I don't even know what uh, as far as Omicron, you know, with COVID and everyone is everyone back in the office and working and. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So we, Korea is never closed. Those one, you know, it's a Korea. They they control the COVID, handle the COVID very well. Yeah. And, we never close there. We keep working, 
and uh, we actually is working probably better off because students cannot you know work go around they yeah. you know there's a lot of restriction what 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 can what they can do they can go to the bar there's a, so a lot of so uh, like uh, restaurants closed uh, during the COVID time period yeah but uh, so off laboratories are always open though <laughs> so <laughs> so just go to the lab with nothing else yeah, to do go to lab also, yeah. <laughs> that's great that's great and yeah no you have a great as far as the layout it's just awesome too it's really exciting and it's and the work you're doing is truly you know it's important it's insightful it's it's broad and it's, re it's it's relevant it's exciting to me so are there any i mean you've talked a little bit about what you're planning on doing is there anything else that that like really excites you as far as the potential for certain questions that could be asked or certain things that are still a mystery or you know what excites you most what do you want to figure out before you retire <laughs> i think that i think a few things that there was i i'm uh I mean, it's a puzzle, but I think it's very important in the neuroimaging community. One is we do a lot of resting state fMRI or default mode method, all of those. What is the other thing we are looking for? So I'm very much interested about the, it's like a resting state is information. What is the biological source of the resting state information? You know, that's one of the things there. The other one is all the layer, or we, so we talk about time difference in the sense question is uh, what we observe in the empirical also, you know, look at the very good uh, uh, high resolution, very localized in the input layer. But we know it's a neural activity spread uh, all different cortical layer very quickly. Yes. As well as uh, we talk about uh, like a uh, timing difference. So this thing is, you know, we observe something of an interesting one, but we don't know why. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so we really do not understand biological source or like, you know, it's what is the underlying cause of this is, uh, you know, of our observation. Observation is, uh, looks very good for us. Yeah. What is a uh, why? I think this yeah. is something, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, unknown. I'm keep looking for those ones, but it's not easy to tackle the issue. Or like, I don't know how to tackle this issue. So I look at a lot of different way, you know, optics, you know, everything I can think about, uh, whatever tool set I have experience in the sense, and uh, just uh, not easy to tackle the issue. But resting state, I probably can tackle the issue because we have, you know, silencing method. So yep. we can do a lot of silencing. So we can map it out to the resting state connectivity using the silencing. Then we can change it. So like a lot of different condition there, you can measure those. So I think that those things is, I'm still very much interested about the biological source of whatever we are measuring. Yeah. Okay, and the cellular basis also. And so like a previously, I mostly look at the you know, biophysical basis or we look at the product flow, product volume, et cetera there. Now I'm more like, what is a cellular or molecular basis of our, what is the fMRI signals? So when you say cellular or molecular basis, you're looking for the specific transporters that cause that relate to neural activity and the whole connection between, you know, neurovascular coupling and and uh, with like you're saying. Well, so some of the things I cannot do it because this is some of people is I'm not expertise about certain area. So it's uh, you know, but if you look at layer, then optic study is not easy to the layer study. You know, yes. you can so I, I think there's a limitation about the certain tool set. So, I mean, kind of is still like kind of, okay, question is why we see it in the sense of what, what the recording in, in the sense, Euro, Euro, Europhysiology study, 
what people are doing and what we observe, how we can you know, somehow match or we can explain yeah. our observation by the like, uh, you know, neural activity or neural recording or something else. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that, I mean, that's what, and that's a, you know, everyone's complaint about fMRI in some sense. It's sort of like, it, it, it's a strong signal. There's a, it's, my intuition is that there's a lot still in the signal to pull out, but, and yeah, uh, there's a lot of assumptions about specifically what goes into it. And uh, yeah, and as, and the more you explain aspects of it, the, the more you open up its potential in that regard. So there's a lot of work to do. You're not going to retire. Um, <laughs> it's a lot more work. I don't want you to retire. The field can't have you retire. Well, I don't want to retire. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to retire. Only problem is in Korea, there was a retirement age there. So, but I don't want to retire because I want to, I have still a lot of things to solve it. And I have a lot of ideas of how to do it. So, you know, I have to work. You may hire me. So. <laughs> We'll hire you definitely. All right, if you, they force you to retire, we'll we'll hire you. And, uh, and I work as a you. <laughs> that that would be awesome. That would be <laughs> oh God, um, yeah. So so I have to say that your approach is clearly um, you know over the years it's been it's been inspiring in, in the sense that you're fearlessly. It's kind of like this fearless sort of like forging ahead, asking these questions. It's very disciplined. It's very, it's very, it seems like you're, you, you keep your focus on the interesting problems uh, all the time, as far as that's concerned and you, and, and the methods. And, and so what, what advice just to, just to finish up, what advice would you give to young researchers? I mean, or even perspective of, of kind of what it took for, you know, of course we were talking about a little serendipity, but also you've, you forged this field uh, with your work, and what do you think is essential to to be successful in this regard? Well, I think this is a difficult question. You know, I mean, we all know it's, uh, it's, uh, you know we have to do hard work, but that's not good enough to be the successful in the sense. We all know about this one, so I think it's a you know selection of uh, your idea, a project is very important. You know, everybody work very hard. We all work hard, all young people or all people, we work hard. So selection of a critical project, something you can solve. Yes. I think that it's a very critical. So I already thinking myself, okay, why is it so important what I'm doing? Why I'm competitive, you know, better than other people. You know, Peter can do better than me. I don't want to do it. So that's the kind of idea what I have it also. So I already, whenever I evaluate the project, the question is, uh, what is my contribution to the com scientific community? And then whether I can do very well. So you see that I, my uh, research field is very narrow. You can see it's not you know, deviate because something I know this uh, area, I can do very well. So that's why I keep working on this area, very narrow area. So it's, it's not can be general, but I think it's, uh, it can be anybody. So you can choose a project, something important, and uh, you can do very well. And then you can enjoy what you're doing. You know, you know I think when you, sometimes you fail, sometimes you succeed, but during the failure, you can find something new because I always thinking when you try, you fail, you will be getting the very interesting motivation. You succeed, you have just papers. Yes. For life, yes. you are planned to the experiment. You you got there and you got just paper. 
then maybe not very interesting. But something you fail, then you find what's what's going on. Then this is a real interesting. Yes. All right. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of a, you know keep working. I mean, and then you know not discouraged about uh, what your failure, and uh, you can try to enjoy what you're doing and try to find something new from your data set. That's what I already I tell my son. Try to find something new from your data. That is yeah. there. Yeah. So you balance. I mean, I think that what you said. It's really important, right? As far as you know, you know, you have a new student or postdoc coming in. I, I love that you mentioned. I mean, certainly it's good to explore, but it's important to have a goal, to a problem, frame it in a problem that you can actually feel you can solve, and then what it means to solve it, and then go about doing that. I, I love that that focus, and and I think a lot of people actually don't necessarily go in with that that sharp sort of uh, focus in terms of the problem. With the with the tools to solve, and then of course, like you said, you you learn a lot from your data, even if it isn't successful. Yeah. So, so you, you you see that like a lot of people thinking is okay. I like to do what I like to do. So, so this I I'm interested in this one. I want to do it. So I said no because you are interested. That means does not mean you can succeed this one because that's not out of your expertise or out of your research area or out of your out of your ability. Because you know I want to be single. Even if I like to do singing, does that mean I can be the singers? Even if yeah. I practice a lot, does that mean I will I will be singers? Yeah. So I think the same thing as uh, every research area. So if you are very good about certain you know area, then if so you focus on those area where you are doing the modeling very well, then you focus on modeling. Yep. You do the uh, MR per sequencing is very good. You can focus on sequencing very good, processing very good, and I think you can. Utilize your expertise in the sense, or you yes. what you are good about those. Yeah, so playing to your strengths as far as that's concerned, and then it it will sort of expand out if maybe if as you delve into it. But uh, but yeah, starting out with kind of what you can actually hit the ground running with in terms of your that's strength. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, great, inspiring work, and uh, and and thank you so much for for coming on. We're obviously. Spent more time than I expected, but it's been it's been amazing, and and it's sort of it feels like it just passed in five minutes. But uh, yeah, so this is great. Well, thank you very much, Sanji. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much, Peter. Thank yeah, you. Best of, yeah, best of luck. Yeah. All right. Neuroscience is brought to you by Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode is produced by Omar Farouk Gulban and. Stefania Asimovic.